Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome listeners, Dr. Sam here and it is that time of year again, the festive season, to look back on the year gone by here on the Pre-Paces podcast. There are some serious numbers flying around on our very own Spotify Wrapped for 2022. We were the top podcast for 710 of you. We had listeners in 74 countries and were in the top 5% of shows followed and shared globally on Spotify. All I can say to you guys is a massive thank you for continuing to listen and support the show. Whether you're miles away from sitting your paces, if you've got it coming up, if you've just passed, or if you're just listening to improve your clinical knowledge. I'm so grateful to all of you listening for making this show what it is, because without you, the show would be nothing. But there's a very special group I want to shout out to today, and I would love for someone to get in touch. To cut a long story short, The podcast host I use allows me to see how many downloads there are from each country, but also goes deeper into how many listeners I have in any given city. Typically, the majority of the audience are from the UK, but there is a proportion from America. And by far and away, the city with the most listeners in the US is from a city called Council Bluffs in Iowa, which accounts for half the downloads I get from the US. So if you're a listener from Council Bluffs, I want to hear from you. How did you get into the show and how is it that Council Bluffs are leading the way with downloads from the US for this podcast? And lastly, there will be a part two of our best bits from 2022, which will include the best bits from the second half of the year, while this episode obviously covers the first half of the year. But between the two episodes, there will, of course, be a little Christmas pod present landing in your podcast feed on the 25th of December. So keep your ears out for that, but it only leaves me to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We'll see you next year on the Pre-Paces Podcast. Kicking off the year in style, we welcome neurology registrar Dr. Anna Francis to join us in tackling myasthenia gravis in paces. Anna was a fantastic guest in this episode and gave us a comprehensive walkthrough of this condition. 
But the real highlight for me was the fantastic coverage of the examination of a patient who may demonstrate signs of myasthenia gravis. So Anna, if we're thinking about our examination, let's start with the cranial nerves. How are we going to start with those? One thing to say to start off with is if the examiner asks for a cranial nerve examination and you detect myasthenia, you still need to examine all of the cranial nerves. You still need to examine the trigeminal because they have asked you for, for a cranial nerve examination. If you go in, you examine the eyes and they say, please examine the eyes and then proceed as you see fit, then that is not an indication to do a cranial nerve examination. That is an indication that they want you to draw some conclusion from your examination of the eyes, whether that is, as we've already discussed, a fluctuating dipopia and ptosis, and then do your focused myasthenia exam. On the other hand, if they just say cranial nerve exam, you've got to do all the cranial nerves and ideally add in the myasthenia specific manoeuvres. If you can't, if you don't have time, that's okay too as long as you cover what you need to cover and pick up the signs. So you're going to go in, do all your normal stuff. So the wipe, wash, introduce, pain, permission, exposure. Do your end of the bedogram, inspect the room. Do they have an FVC machine? Have they got walking aids, oxygen? Have they got medications in front of them? Look at the patient. Have they got IV access for steroids or IVIG? Do they have from the end of the bed a ptosis? Bismuth. Have they got an eye patch or prism in their lenses? Prism in the lenses is not so common in myasthenia because a prism will correct a, a fixed defect and it's usually fluctuating in a myasthenic. Do they have a myasthenic snarl? So when you smile at them, are they able to smile back or is it more the snarl? Are they supporting their head with their hands? Are they obviously dyspneic? And have they got a thymectomy scar from the end of the bed, which you probably won't see unless they've got their full exposure. Um, and then starting uh, your cranial nerve examination, obviously you're going to do the cranial nerve so, you know, sense of smell. If they you know, offer visual acuity, colour vision, pupil reflexes and ophthalmoscopy. Then you test their range of eye movements. Do they have a variable ophthalmoplegia? So do it more than once. And can they sustain up gaze for more than 30 seconds? So do your normal, whatever you do, whether it's an H shape or a diamond shape, then raise your hand and keep them looking up for 30 seconds. Do they develop ptosis? Can they maintain up gaze or does their superior rectus start to weaken? Uh, and if you do see ptosis, at this point, say, I would like to offer an ice pack test to reverse the ptosis. And then cranial nerve five, cranial nerve seven. So do all your cranial nerve seven, but then also peak sign. So not only are you asking them to, to close their eyes tight, but close their eyes against resistance to test the bicularis oculus. Can they really keep their eyes closed? You should never be able to open someone's eyes with your hands and ask them, can they, can they sustain a smile? Have they got that myasthenic snarl, their abicularis oris? Can they purse their lips together? against you trying to open their lips and usually they will you will not be able to open a healthy person's mouth if they have curled their lips in tightly and then if it's a cranial nerve examination you go on and you test hearing and balance and all the bulbar function as well but particularly in a myasthenic patient as we've already discussed I would usually ask a patient to count as high as they can in one breath and then you're listening for dysarthria 
pharyngeal escapes, that kind of breathy air escaping. And it's a good indicator of their vital capacity. So if they can count to less than 15, I would say, in one breath, and the reason, and it's a, it's a neuromuscular reason, then that is a worrying feature. Uh, and ask the patient to cough as well. That's If they can't, haven't got an effective cough, I would be concerned. And I wonder if, if we could just go back quickly to the ice pack test. What what exactly does that involve? So it's 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 exactly what it says in the tin. You have your patient and ideally they've got a quite marked ptosis. If they haven't already, then try and exhaust them by maintaining up gaze for a certain amount of time. So, you know, their, their levator palpebrae becomes, becomes progressively weaker uh, and they develop a, a more marked ptosis. And then you, to, to the eye, apply a, an ice pack. Uh, and the the theory is is that uh, colder temperatures enhance um, enhance neuromuscular transmission. Uh, so you keep the ice pack on for a couple of minutes, as long as they can tolerate, really, uh, and then you take it off, and the ptosis will have partially reversed. Fantastic. So carrying on, you've covered the respiratory and bulbar function. So what would you suggest looking at next? So I always, as I say, work from top down. So so neck. Have they got central line scars from previous plasma exchange or, or tracheostomy scars? Check neck flexion and extension, because as I said, if they can't lift their head off the bed, they're probably booking a ticket to ITU. Um, Percuss for thymoma. Or, um, so 50%, I think it is, of young uh, seropositive patients have thymic hyperplasia and about 10% have a thymoma. Uh, so just percuss for it. It looks good. They'll ask you why, and you can say because 10% have a thymoma and you look very professional. Um, and then arms, can they sustain abduction, abduction for 20 seconds? Do the arms sag and tested against resistance? Are they weak? And the way to test fatigability in any muscle is by asking them to either sustain or repeat a movement. So ask them to repeatedly abduct their arm 20 times and reassess power against resistance. Is it fatigable? Um, one thing to do is an alternative to that, which is probably a bit quicker, is to ask the patient to relax their right arm, but continue to abduct the left arm against resistance for a few seconds, for sort of 20 seconds, and then compare the left and the right. So the left will have been exerting itself while the right will have been recovering. And after that, the left arm will be weaker if they've got a fatigable weakness. Uh, if they're asking for a limb exam, check bone reflexes, coordination and sensation. But if if you're on a myasthenic role, if they've said examine the eyes and then proceed and you think it's myasthenia, don't, don't bother. They, they don't care. Wasting is rare and it's only seen in that sort of burned out disease when you've ruined your, your um, synaptic cleft. You can do repeat reflex testing because it will lead to decrement and eventually elimination if you test it with high enough frequency. And the reflexes in the Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome will be enhanced with repeat testing. Um, legs, pretty much the same as, as the arms. Assess gait if you can, or just at least offer it. Check the patient can flex the hip against gravity with a straight leg raise for 20 seconds and test fatigability by asking them to, to repeat it. But again, tone, reflexes, coordination, sensation, they're all going to be normal. Brilliant. And so I guess the key thing to think about is in a station five, you've got free roam to do whatever you wish in terms of examination, which can be targeted to the patient's present complaint. If you're in a station three, 
you'd hope the examiners would be quite clear with what they expect you to do. They may say, as you said at the start, examine the eyes and proceed as you see fit. And this is your opportunity, once you've finished examining the eyes, to add in the extra little bits, which might include some brief examinations of the limbs. But Anna, one thing I wanted to ask is, you mentioned a few times about the fact that this is a fatigable weakness. And to demonstrate this during your examination, you need time for the patient to look up for 30 seconds or raise their arms for 30 seconds. And in a station five, that's exactly what the candidates don't have. They don't have time. So with that in mind, what would you suggest to try and overcome some of this time pressure? And what are the key parts of the examination that you should do your best to demonstrate myasthenia gravis? There are three things I'd say. The first is that you don't have to demonstrate fatigability in every muscle. If you demonstrate fatigability in a muscle group, then you've demonstrated fatigability. So go for the, go for the muscles that are most likely to demonstrate it. Um, the second thing is that you can combine tests. So if you want to focus on doing, um, asking them to look up for 30 seconds whilst counting as high as they can uh, in one breath, then you've killed two birds with one stone. You've, well, more than that, really, you've checked their bulbar function, you've checked their respiratory function, and you've checked for fatigable ptosis. So already you've done two of those things. The third thing to say is that you can be selective. If you've combined the tests and you're selective in what you do, then you can really save time. And the tests that I would go for are eyes, facial weakness, neck and bulbar function and arm. And if you've covered those, then you've covered everything. So check for fatigable weakness in the arm, check they've got a reasonable cough and that they can count to 20. And if you can do that combined, then that's, that's fine as well. Just great advice there from Dr. Anna Francis, Neurology Registrar in Oxford. But our next clip comes from our Twitter gastro guru, Dr. Ajay Verma, consultant gastroenterologist at Kettering General Hospital, who was kind enough to come on the show to discuss inflammatory bowel disease in so much detail, we had to split it into two episodes. This first clip comes from our first episode where RJ gives us an example of how to approach a station three, the examination station, for a patient with inflammatory bowel disease. We're skipping right to the meat of the sandwich and pick up from where you would come to examine the patient's abdomen. Yeah, absolutely. So with that in mind, hopefully the listeners have progressed very swiftly through the parts of the examination we've already covered and very quickly coming to the abdomen where quite rightly you said that's where the money's going to be. As you mentioned at the start, some of the things you may find may include scars. So in terms of the the nature and type of scars, this can be quite variable, can't it? And so what are the sorts of scars that the candidates may watch out for? I suppose it, a lot depends if they have a stoma or not. If if they have a stoma, then there'll be scars associated with that and, and uh, around the stoma and also a scar in, in usually in the midline because they've had a laparotomy. Uh, and and that will be very clear. They won't be subtle. And I, I think the key is just to carefully, um, when you examine, you know, lift the stoma bag up and just try and delineate the scars themselves because actually looking at the scars and seeing if there's a, uh, an infection or a, or a fistula tract from a scar, it may be something that may be hidden under uh, under the stoma bag or a little dressing. Uh, if they don't have a stoma, then 
you would expect if there if there's an IBD case in there, there should be an obvious scar. And as I said, a, a midline scar or a kind of left or right paramedian scar, depending if they've had a you know hemicolectomy. I mean, with Crohn's disease, you'd expect more on the possibly on the right side, whether they've done that. If you look quite quite carefully around the umbilicus, you might see a port scar because um, more and more our IBD surgical colleagues are trying to do laparoscopic surgery to, to kind of uh, preserve the abdominal wall as much as possible. So the, the, this should be very obvious, but yeah, the, the ones that can be difficult are the laparoscopic port sites. So they will be there, and, and there's always one around the umbilicus. So just kind of look quite carefully, and they should be uh, visible. Great. One of the things you mentioned before is that IBD is an, an internal condition. So it can be quite difficult unless there is a, a stoma suggestive of a specific operation. It can be difficult to yeah. tell ex- exactly what operation they've had done. Yeah, I would suggest if they've put an IBD case in station one, then there's got to be something external as a clue, uh, you know, beyond a scar. I, I, I think it would be a really tough case just to have uh, just a simple abdominal scar, unless they had kind of quite gross systemic features, uh, which suggest cachexia and anemia. So you, you normally expect a stoma. The other thing to do, uh, and you know, there's real life and there's exam life, you know, it's um, whether there is something around the bottom end. Now, in real life, we would have a look, and it's not actually necessarily doing a rectal examination, but we often just inspect to see if there's or something obvious there. I would be really surprised, to be honest, Sam, if that was put into a PACES case. So, you know, that's in real life where we'd look. But I think for a PACES case, they're going to look at the abdominal wall, and, and you'd expect either a stoma with some systemic signs, or if there's big scars and maybe other systemic signs, and then, then it's trying to put it as a differential, say, yeah, this, this, you know, given the systemic state of the patient and these scars, uh, I do wonder if they've got an inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, and just one of the things, Sam, that the kind of, you know, I think we're going to talk about this next, the site of the stoma may be a clue um, into, the, into the possible different conditions they may have. Well, that seems like a perfect segue to take us into the next bit, which we've already discussed is if there's a stoma there there's there's often a systematic way of trying to examine a stoma and, and like you say indications of the type of operation or uh, indeed the the health of the patient in general on the basis of their stoma so what should our listeners be looking out for when they come to examine a patient with a stoma so again real life and and kind of paces life in real life it might ask you to take the the stoma bag away and the reason why is it's not unheard of for um, stomas to break down. So there was a horrible case I heard once before that a patient admitted to intensive care with sepsis and then desperately unwell for days and, and no one took off their stoma bag. And when they took the stoma bag off, everything was necrotic underneath. Uh, stomas naturally are stretched away from the internal abdomen. So the blood supply to the stoma can be compromised. So it, it can have a fail rate of the stoma of around 10%. I think for the exam though, it, it's you can look at the bag try and look at the contents and the, maybe the bag is clear some stone bags are clear so you can actually have a brief look at the the kind of health of the stoma but i don't think it would be appropriate to remove the stoma bag during the paces examination the site of the stoma um can be indicative but not always um you know the books will tell you uh, a stoma on the left side may maybe a colostomy and and colostomy content should be fecal um, a stoma on the right side, maybe an ileostomy that's usually spouted a bit more. That you not, won't necessarily see that through a stoma bag. 
and the content should be uh, a lot paler and maybe more tastier. However, because IBD, sometimes the, the nature of Crohn's disease, that it can be very patchy and it may have had multiple operations, it's sadly not unheard of to have ileostomies anywhere and also have colostomies anywhere. So it's a rough guide, but don't be, don't be confused by that. If you see a stoma bag in the midline or you see a stoma bag elsewhere, you know, on the right side, and then it's actually got some stool in it, and maybe that they've had to do um, a, a colostomy on that side. And it may be a, a defunctioning colostomy or a defunctioning ileostomy that is not permanent, or it may be an endiviostomy. We also have things like mucous fistulas, which uh, you may have a, a stoma bag connected, and there's not a lot in the bag. In the exam, I would just describe what you see in the content, but it, it's very hard with stomas to necessarily uh, make conclusive definitions, just apart from the fact they've had some type of surgery. Even I, as a physician, you know, we were kind of relative experts on stomas, but when it comes to real issues with those, we still kind of get our stoma nurses involved and, and ask our colorectal surgeons. So I think for an exam, the standard would be just to look at it and, and look underneath the bag just to make sure it's not, the bag's not covering something hidden underneath, like the dressing where there may be a fistula or something like that. In our second episode discussing inflammatory bowel disease, Ajay runs through the investigations, management and common examiner questions. In this clip, Ajay runs us through one of the most common questions which you could be asked in a station where a patient may have inflammatory bowel disease. And don't forget to head over to Ajay's Twitter, which is at UKGastroDoctor, for more gastro-themed tutorials if you are that way inclined. And so one of the things which is really important in these patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease is, is the complications. I know you've already mentioned a few throughout the episode. Yes. I, I wonder if you can just run through the, the complications of uh, both Crohn's and UC and then also of the, uh, you've mentioned already some of the treatments, but maybe you can just give us a good overview of sort of the whole condition and the treatment of it. So I'll go for UC because that's relatively straightforward. So with acute severe ulcerative colitis, we um, screen for things like toxic megacolon, and that's a precondition to perforation. So that's that's the kind of main thing. You can obviously have complications due to bleeding with, with anemia and, and also all IBD, especially in acute severe, you, you've got an increased risk of thromboembolism. So this is a really key point here. If you're managing an inpatient on take with IBD, even if they've got profuse uh, kind of bloody diarrhea due to colitis, it is critical they have VTE prophylaxis, you know, TED stockings and uh, low molecular weight heparin, because that, even though the bleeding is visibly quite frightening, the risk of uh, VTE uh, supersedes that. And, and it's really critical you don't do that. That's for both Crohn's and UC. And the reason why is UC, a bit like Burns and nephrotic syndrome, is a protein-losing state. So when you're in a protein-losing state, the liver compensates by pumping out more proteins. And the balance of uh, coagulation means that in, in that kind of two, three-month period around a severe flare, you're much more likely to have a thrombosis. Uh, and you can get quite severe venous and arterial thrombosis. And we've seen those over the years. Um, longer term with UC, you're looking at things like colonic cancer, but that, that's driven by poorly controlled colitis over many years. So that risk has kind of waned over time because our treatments have got better, but it is still something that, that is there. And the problem is if you get um, what we call CAC, so colitis-associated cancer, they, they don't do very well because of uh, um, the, the presentation of the disease can be quite diffuse. With Crohn's disease, 
Sam, I could talk to you for three hours alone on, on complications of Crohn's disease. So <laughs> I, I will try and keep that relatively um, straightforward. So you've got the kind of perianal disease side of things, um, abscesses, collections, fistula tract, um, which, which can be um, quite um, severe and debilitating, um, affecting sexual function, confidence, etc. So it is really important that um, that is managed quite effectively. And sometimes we even have to do defunctioning surgery just to kind of give chance for that to heal or to um, be treated appropriately. In terms of, because Crohn's disease is a full thickness, um, a disease affecting the kind of all the layers of, of the, the small and large bowel, then you're much more likely to get strictures. You're much more likely to get fistulae between uh, bowel and small bowel, between bowel and bladder, between the bowel and the skin. All of these are very debilitating and difficult to manage, though anti-TNF treatments such as uh, infliximab has got the best results for things like that, as long as the sepsis associated with that is, is treated. Um, the other thing to just remember, and this is true for any condition with sepsis, um, treatments don't work if sepsis is persistent. So, you know, we can give nutritional treatments, you can give um, immunosuppression, but if you've got uncontrolled sepsis, you know, collections and the like, that, that ain't going to heal. So it's really important that it's managed uh, quite well. Uh, do you want me to talk about some of the treatment things as well in terms of uh, biological risks? Um, I'll quickly mention those, actually. So obviously there's the risks of infections and we, we um, uh, screen for those. But the really important thing is things like cancer and pre-malignancy. So it's really important if patients have got skin cancer or they're, they're at risk of skin cancer or things like cervical cancer or they've had lymphoma in the past, then it's important that we check for those things um, either at the time of starting treatment or monitor going forwards because they are kind of relative contraindications and risk. Um, being on immunosuppression, and you'll know this from transplant medicine, uh, your risk of skin cancer goes, uh, goes through the roof. Um, so it is similar to that to a degree with immunosuppression for IBD. So it's important you advise people, you know, to be, be sensible. Uh, what do they say in Australia? Uh, slip, slap, slop, you know, uh, uh, sun cream, uh, stick on a T-shirt, uh, pop, slap on, a, you know, slap on a hat. It's really important that they're very, very um, responsible for skin care um, in the sun. Uh, so th those are the main things, I think. But yeah, it, there's a lot to cover. And Crohn's disease, as I said, you, you can go to town with it. And speaking of going to town, next up, we're joined by Dr. Tom Minton, neurology registrar, who helped us run through myotonic dystrophy. In this clip, Tom gives us a rundown of everything you should be doing in a peripheral nerve examination of a patient with myotonic dystrophy, which gives you an extra two minutes of the rest of the exam to twiddle your thumbs and smile smugly at the examiner. So that's more or less covered a cranial nerve examination. If we move on now to a slightly different scenario where you might be asked to examine the limbs. Now, in my view, this is probably the more the more likely scenario with it being a, a muscular condition. You're going to want to focus on the muscular components of, of a neurological examination, such as power, and typically there aren't any sensory deficits. Um, but with this in mind, if, if you're already suspecting a diagnosis, one tactic which I would always recommend is that if you see those signs which we discussed at the start, the frontal balding, the partial ptosis, 
always think about if it's a muscular problem, leave your sensation to the end of the examination. Going on from there, Tom, what are the candidates likely to find if they go through a peripheral nerve examination of these patients' limbs? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Sam. As you said, about if you see the features that you think are uh, the classical features of, of myotonic dystrophy, go straight for the part of the examination that's going to give you the most information. And that's going to be examining power of the limbs and also looking for evidence of, um, of myotonia. You can start with tone, if you like. It's probably not going to give you that much information. Sometimes you do get reduced tone uh, in these patients, um, but you shouldn't see increased tone in these patients. And then moving on to power, um, in myotonic dystrophy, you tend to get um, distal weakness, particularly in the um, in the finger flexors and also in the lower limbs, you tend to get sort of um, foot drop. Um, whereas actually, um, it, can, it can affect any muscle but generally affects, in terms of myotonic dystrophy, type 1, the distal muscles. And this is where we go into uh, a little bit into uh, myotonic dystrophy type 2. If you're very, very clever, myotonic dystrophy two, type 2 tends to give you more proximal weakness. But either way, um, as long as you're able to demonstrate weakness in the limbs, um, uh, you can then move on to perhaps demonstrating um, myotonia. Uh, and the way to demonstrate myotonia in the um, in the limbs is, is first of all to ask to ask the patient to grip your fingers as hard as they can for around five seconds and then ask them to release it and again much like with with the um, eyelid myotonia you'll have difficulty relaxing the grip on your hands as well as that you can try uh, percussion uh, myotonia and you get a tendon hammer uh, and just percuss uh, the thenar eminence and you'll see uh, myotonia uh, affecting the um, uh, thenar eminence and you can also do it in some of the extensive muscles of the forearm as well. So yeah, so the main things you're going to look for are weakness, particularly in a distal pattern in, in myotonic dystrophy type 1, which is what you're most likely to see, and then myotonia. In terms of reflexes, again, probably not going to give you much um, information. If anything, they're likely to be a little bit reduced or absent uh, in, in myotonic dystrophy. With, with that in mind, if you think this is myotonic dystrophy, you're not going to get much information from the sensory examination and you're not going to get much information from examining um, coordination. Um, but you can always suggest that um, you would examine those in full and maybe the examiner can lead you with that. That's about it really in terms of, of um, examination of limbs in myotonic dystrophy. Next up, we have the fabulous consultant in obstetric medicine at Guy's and Tommy's in London. It's Dr. Anita Banerjee, who gave us two absolutely brilliant episodes where we learned about looking after patients with medical problems in pregnancy, as well as some application to PACES. And one of the highlights of this episode was Anita giving us the rundown of the possible differential diagnoses of a breathless pregnant patient. Um, one thing I just wanted to um, discuss as well, which I think is important, is, like you said, we need to think very carefully about the differential diagnoses when we're taking our history. So sometimes this can vary in the pregnant patient as opposed to the non-pregnant patient. But what are the sort of differential diagnoses of breathlessness in pregnancy specifically, as well as the additional thoughts that we should have from a non-pregnant perspective? Yeah, really good question. So I would say that if you've got somebody pregnant, the first thing you want to do is understand what we mean by breathlessness. Okay, is she panting? Is it when she's moving? Is it on exertion? So you've got to look at your red flags. And you've also got to think of the symptoms. And I will refer you now to the acute care toolkit from the RCP looking at med acute medical problems in pregnancy. 
um, which gives you um, differentials and management processes. So common things are common. If you're breathless in pregnancy, it could be because you're anemic. It could be because of asthma. Okay, so we're not very good at managing asthma outside of pregnancy. And in, during pregnancy, you know, because you've got that reflux and, and that, that um, increased risk of the uterus coming up, you could become more short of breath. And it's because you've actually got heartburn and then asthma. So anemia, asthma, okay, and then the common things for other breathlessness, and you've got to think about those, is um, pneumonia. You've got to think about cardiomyopathy and heart problems. So, you know, we are calling it breathlessness, but is it breathlessness walking on exertion and excluding the dangerous ones and understanding that? I hope that gives you an idea. Mm. And and then in terms of, I mean, I've, I've heard the term before of sort of just physiological breathlessness in pregnancy. Is that more or less just a, a diagnosis of exclusion once you've, you know, ruled out the worst possible things? It is and it isn't. Or I was going. Or the other thing is, can we make a positive diagnosis of that? Yeah. Okay. So I I like what you said about this physiological breathlessness of pregnancy and air hunger is what I call it. Okay. Because when you take the history, she's not short of breath climbing the stairs or carrying her shopping. She's actually breathless when she's talking on the phone. Does that make sense? So you've got to be sharp about taking it. And don't get me wrong. In my twenty-five years as a doctor, I have sometimes completed a chest x-ray, done an echo and a BMP before I've called it air hunger. And it's all about the history and examination. So if we think it's asthma, we know that it's going to be more short of breath at night. We know she could be wheezy. Okay. If it's air hunger, it's this idea of my friends tell me that when I talk on the phone, I'm breathless. When you ask her and you challenge the patient and say, can you climb stairs? Can you walk across the bridge? There's no problems. So I think you can exclude it and you can make a diagnosis of it, but you also need to be open-minded enough to make sure you've excluded the red flags of breathlessness or thopnea um, palpitations and put that into context. And in the last clip of this episode, I was joined by respiratory consultant, Dr. Diana Kavanagh, who featured on one of our most popular episodes of the year, bronchiectasis. Diana has her very own podcast, The Respiratory Guru, where she talks through the genuinely useful respiratory updates and covers the most recent evidence based in respiratory medicine. The highlight of this episode was discussing the management of a patient with bronchiectasis. But Diana, this is a really comprehensive coverage of a, of a of a common condition and so your management needs to be absolutely on point and and the examiners if you didn't know the key pillars of managing bronchiectasis you know this is something which they would expect you to do well on so we'll spend a bit of time on this but what are the cornerstones of managing a patient with bronchiectasis so the cornerstone as it were the, the, the main things are um first identifying the cause because if you can remove that great um you know for example like an autoimmune disease that's kind of you know rushing away with, with you so you know, identify that um, or if it says is for example um uh, an immunodeficiency you can give immunoglobulin infusions you know etc so there are you know lots of different things if you found the trigger for the bronchiectasis treat it Next thing is, is kind of two things. So one is getting the phlegm up and off the chest 
And then the next thing is when you do have an infection, making sure it's a targeted antibiotic therapy. So with respect to getting the phlegm up and off your chest, um, so this is uh, usually helpful with a chest physiotherapist. Ideally, in reality, it, it's kind of difficult uh, in the community to get one. But yeah, good chest physiotherapy. Other things, um, the phlegm in bronchiectasis patients is usually thick and sticky. Um, so and I always ask that in my history. And if it is, then you can give them uh, carbocysteine. Uh, so that's mucodin or it's a mucolytic, really thins it and helps you able to shift it and bring it up. There are also what we call OPEP devices. Now, I said that and I can't exactly remember what OPEP stands for or the Aerobica device. They're a bit like flutter devices. And what they do is you um, they, they're a mecha mechanical device that flutters the, uh, the air within the chest, vibrates the air within the chest, shakes up the phlegm, shakes up the mucus secretions and help you expectorate it. And patients love it. So that is how, that's kind of in a nutshell, how you um, get the phlegm up and off their chest. Obviously, just a bit of good housekeeping at that point is make sure that they're not smoking because that's just going to drive the ongoing inflammation. Um, make sure that they are fully vaccinated. So that includes COVID these days, um, but obviously your usual uh, flu and pneumococcus. And you can also, sorry, back in your test, I forgot to say at the start, when you you can send functional antibodies um, for pneumococcus and haemophilus, and you can vaccinate against both of those. Um, so we do that. And then also just making sure they've got some nutrition optimization. These patients, like I said, they're kectic. They don't get time to eat. When they do eat, it wants to be quite calorie dense. Um, so, you know, asking a dietitian um, to see them as well can be very helpful. Then... If chest clearance is one thing, the next thing is sputum samples. You've got to get sputum samples and then you need to find out what's growing in it and give them a targeted course of antibiotic therapy for two weeks. That's the rule. You need to find that. Once you are having a patient who's having more than two chest infections per year, despite having a targeted two-week course of antibiotic therapy, then they can go on to prophylactic antibiotics. And then that takes you into the world of nebulized antibiotics as your background that takes you into azithromycin and so on and so forth. So they're the two things. If you you haven't got long in the pacer station, and I know you need to do all the MDT thing, the money outside of being kind to your MDT members is chest clearance and sputum samples, because that's what actually gets a patient better. Brilliant. What a, what a rattle through. And just if I can ask a bit more about the, uh, the prophylactic antibiotics, is it by and large just nebulized antibiotics? Do you go for oral or other forms of giving antibiotics? So it depends on what the sensitivities are. And uh, that's what it is. So ideally, you would, you know, you would say have this patient that's regularly exacerbating, you know, they need to go on a prophylactic antibiotic, and the sputum sample would come back saying, uh, you know, that they are sensitive to an oral tablet, um, which you can give that which you can give. Problem with bronchiectasis is because they've had recurrent chest infections, they've got a really dark and murky airway tree. There's a lot of nasty stuff growing, growing down there and it becomes nasty and it becomes resistant. So actually a lot of the stuff that we see um, is resistant to your typical oral antibiotics. The very common one is like Pseudomonas. And if you're lucky, it will be um, sensitive to ciprofloxacin. So you can try that. You can try 500 milligrams BD of Cipro. And uh, I always got taught that there was a difference 
between um, Cipro sensitivity in vitro and in vivo, i.e. if it says that it is resistant on the on the dish or on your um, on your panel that comes back, it may, it may well actually work um, for the patient themselves. So it is worth giving the patient, for example, Cipro, because after that, everything's pretty resistant to all the oral antibiotics. So it's not really like we say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It's, um, you know, it's what they can take. So after that, you, you, you'll then usually get given gentamicin, tobramycin, colomycin, but they're all nebulized. Um, so that's why we give it nebulized, because we've run out of oral options. Um, and then, so it's also the thing with oral options. We do like azithromycin as well. Um, but really, it's not, Azithro isn't targeted to a specific bacteria. It's antibacterial and anti-inflammatory, which is why we love it. Um, but it's not a true antibiotic in the sense that we're trying to sterilize the chest to get them clean with a bronchiectatic patient. So um, so that's why we that's why we that's why we vary our therapy depending on the, the sensitivities. Yeah, brilliant. And one of the things which I always find really difficult when seeing these patients on the medical take is trying to suss out when exactly there's a true in infective exacerbation. So just thinking outside the paces box for a moment, if you're seeing these types of patients or maybe even, you know, in a history taking station or a station five, you know, you've got time to ask patients these types of questions. Maybe your patient's known to have bronchiectasis. What sort of elements in a history would make you think, okay, this is different from the bog standard cough of your bronchiectasis, and actually, this is a this sounds like a true infective exacerbation of bronchiectasis. So it's a change from their baseline is what you're trying to dig at. Um, but if you want some rule of thumbs, one of my uh, consultants uh, taught me uh, it's a two out of three criteria. Now, this isn't based on any guidelines. This is based on the fact that he's been, you know, he's 65 now. So he's just by osmosis learned everything there is to know about respiratory. But it is ask the patient about change in volume of phlegm, change in colour of phlegm, and have their symptoms worsened, including, for example, breathlessness. Two out of three things indicate usually they've got a chest infection. So has the volume changed and has the colour changed? It's probably infection. Has the colour changed and they feel worse? It's probably infection. So that's 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 my two out of three rule to, for assessing it. Well, there we have it, guys. The end of part one of our best bits of 2022. Look out for the little package of festive fun in your podcast feed on Christmas Day. And as usual, don't forget to like, follow or subscribe to the show. Give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Every rating or review goes a long way to helping other people find the show. And as usual, if you want to directly support the show, you can do so with a pay what you can completely voluntary donation at buymeacoffee.com slash pre paces podcast. And finally, one note of appreciation for any of our listeners who are working over the Christmas period. We hope you get some time to relax, unwind and enjoy time with family, friends, loved ones or whoever you're spending the festive period with. Join us next time for your little package of festive fun on Christmas Day. But for now, that only leaves me to wish you all once again a very Merry Christmas and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast.